Welcome to the Four Preaching Channel. Hopefully, last week you enjoyed getting to see a slightly younger and more nervous me in front of a large crowd of people. Uh, hopefully, you also got to see that there is a specific place we should be looking for our hope and our joy. This week, I've got a haircut. I'm wearing a shirt to try and distract from that fact. I think it looks good. Whatever the case may be, we're going to be moving on in Matthew to look at the next couple of verses. Now, today's passage is going to illustrate for us that God is faithful to his people no matter what. But we must recognize that we are called to be faithful to him as well and not to try to live our best life now and just hope that God will keep us alive until we're ready to follow his call. Now, this week's passage is a little bit smaller, and it feels like it's sort of squeezed in after the Magi leave. If you're like me, you may be tempted to just read over this and to see it as kind of like the quick ending, the quick follow-up point that Matthew makes. Oh, the Magi have left now, and then, you know, they had to go do this quick road trip. Uh, but every piece of scripture has value to it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, I want us to quickly look at the passage we're going to be studying today. And that is going to be found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. So if you will, let's read it. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt... I called my son. Now, first thing I want us to notice, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want us to notice how the shift, right, in last week's passage, the shift was, or the focus of the passage was very heavily on the Magi as they've journeyed, as they interact with Herod, uh, as they come and interact with uh, Jesus and Mary. And here we'll see that the shift in this little three verses shifts back to Joseph somewhat. Right? Now, Joseph isn't the main character, but pay attention to that shift. Now, as we recall from studying Matthew over the last couple weeks, especially in our very first sermon on Matthew 1.1, we remember that the Gospel of Matthew is geared towards a Jewish audience. And Matthew is trying to make the case that Jesus fulfills all of the requirements, but also all of the prophecies about who the Messiah will be. In fact, we actually see it stated here in verse 15. Matthew is trying to make that point. It says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. So there's this heavy emphasis on prophecy in Matthew. And we have to recognize this passage is another one of those opportunities for Matthew to his Jewish audience to make that claim that Jesus is the Messiah, is the one that God has sent to rescue Israel. In fact, where Matthew is quoting here is found in Hosea. Hosea 11 verse 1 is the passage that, well, some of the passage that Matthew is quoting here. But it's important for us to recognize, because we always want to do this, right, when we see 
the New Testament using the Old Testament. We want to see what the context is. We want to understand what the Old Testament author was trying to say so we can have a better grasp of what the New Testament author is also trying to say. And if we look back at Hosea, you'll notice that this portion of Isaiah or of Hosea is not talking about the Messiah necessarily, but it's talking about Israel, specifically how God brings Israel up out of Egypt um, with, with Moses and, and Exodus and all of that. So it helps us, and this is important because it helps us see that Matthew here is making a comparison. Even though Hosea is not talking specifically about Jesus, Matthew is making the claim that Hosea's prophecy finds its ultimate fulfillment here in Christ. Now, Christ's life, in a way, is being paralleled with Israel. In fact, in the Old Testament, you would see that often the children of Israel are actually called the Son of God. Israel is considered God's son, his firstborn son, oftentimes. And here, Jesus' life is almost in a parallel, right? We see Jesus now going down to Egypt and also being retrieved from Egypt afterward. If we look a little bit closer, we'll notice that the original descent into Egypt also involved a Joseph. Isn't that crazy? The original descent into Egypt that Israel had uh, took place um, shortly after the events in Joseph's life with his coat of many colors and his brothers chucking him in a pit because somehow selling him into slavery is better than killing him, which I guess is arguably true. Still awful though. And then as that Joseph rises up to power by God's will in Egypt, ultimately Israel is brought down into Egypt to escape famine. Here, Jesus, the new, the real, the true, the living son of God, is now being brought down in Egypt also to escape death, though not, not famine. It's like a murderous king, because Herod is real murderous. So it, it's interesting to see from this perspective that God has purposefully caused Jesus to mirror Israel in that way, right? Because God could have just offed King Herod. Honestly, the world might have been a better place. Well, Obviously, God knew better, but in my mind, the world would have been a much better place if Herod had just been killed. Herod, or Herod was a murderer of the worst variety. It's said that he had several wives. He's actually, uh, historically, we know that he's, he murdered two of his own wives. One of his wives that he murdered was his favorite wife. He still murdered her. So not a great guy. Um, and we know this, not just from, not just from looking at the Bible, because next week we're going to see some pretty brutal stuff that he does as well. Um, but we know this from secular history as well. We know that Herod is not a great guy. And it would have been easier, in my mind, for God to have just killed him and have saved his son that way. But rather, God purposefully mirrors the life of the nation of Israel by bringing Jesus down into Egypt. Now, ultimately, we want to see that the key is that God is faithful regardless of our faithfulness or others' faithfulness to him. And in order to do that, I want to kind of take this out and look at it from two perspectives, right? Uh, we have to kind of look at it from the perspective of those who are not faithful to God, that God is faithful to anyway, and that one who is faithful to God and God is faithful to as well. And in order to do that, we're going to kind of have to look between Israel and uh, Jesus. So at first, I want us to look at the Israel side of things. So let's go back to Hosea very briefly and just see how Hosea characterizes Israel because it's funny funny enough 
Israel, Hosea's continued description of Israel here, it, it gets gnarly real fast. But let's look at it. It's found in Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and it says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Israel was not a faithful people. I don't know how much more we can underscore that fact. Israel was not faithful. There were times and seasons of faithfulness, but on the the overarching theme of Israel is that they are not faithful to God. Israel was pretty awful when it comes to religious purity. And often God would remind his people not to be drawn away into these unholy worships, these unholy unions with false gods. And ironically, more often than not, Israel would end up going and worshiping false gods that were of the countries that enslaved them. Or as we saw the week before last with Ahaz, after he's beaten by the Assyrians, you know, he goes to Assyria, the guys who just beat him, to figure out what gods they're worshiping so he can worship them. They're, they're constantly on the prowl, if you will, trying to find the best gods. But this doesn't ever work, right? Not, not only does seeking other gods not work, but trying to figure out how other people do life to make our lives better doesn't really do, it doesn't really work. And we see this in James chapter 4, verse 4. It reminds us that seeking friendship with the world, you know, seeking our fulfillment, our hope and our joy, like we talked about last week, in the world, it puts us at enmity with God. And it rightfully calls those who do this adulterous. Now, James 4.4 4 says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But even in the midst of spiritual adultery, God still loved and cared for Israel. Crazy. I mean, we've seen in the Old Testament many of the ways that Israel has walked away from God and not cared about God or what God loves, but yet still God loves Israel. And in fact, if we continue on in Hosea, which we will, look at verses 3 and 4, we'll see how God responds to their spiritual unfaithfulness. Hosea 11, 3 and 4 says this, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Right? God describes himself as leading them with cords of kindness. But we know from other parts of the Bible, again, we don't ever want to look at just one part of the Bible and try to build theology around it. We know about God's cords of kindness from another part of the Bible, right? We see in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, God also, or Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about God's kindness and says, Or do you presume, talking to those who judge others, even though they're, inst they're also uh, doing things that are awful and evil, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So are we ever tempted to apply God's or our moral code to God? Do we ever live our life in such a way that we just assume if we're not 
hurting, if we're not suffering, God must be okay with what we're doing. He must be, you know, in love with our actions. Rather, we see here that oftentimes God's kindness is a means by which he draws us back to repentance. Now, let me ask you a question. Would God be good if he never had mercy on you? Did you say yes? Because that's the answer. We're all sinners. None of us merit God's mercy. None of us deserve his mercy. Rather, we deserve God's wrath because as sinners, we are separated inextricably from the holiness and the perfection that God requires in order to be in his presence. And the trouble with discussions about God's faithfulness is that all too often in 2021 in America, we spend time looking at God's faithfulness and we all we think about is how he loves us and how he cares for us and how he's going to keep us safe and warm and make sure we're fed. But we often miss the fact that God's faithfulness is great because of how utterly unfaithful we are. Even as a seminarian, I, I wrestle with the fact that there are often times where I am just not faithful to God. There are times when I would rather eat or sleep than be reading his word or serving him. God's mercy is good because of how crushingly necessary it is in our lives. We don't deserve it, and yet still God is faithful to give it. That faithfulness it must always be coupled with the understanding that our sinfulness means we don't merit that faithfulness. We don't deserve it. And yet God gives it to us anyway. And I mean, to confirm this, we can go back to the book of Romans, right? In Romans 2, we see that the due penalty of unrighteousness is God's wrath and that he is perfectly right to judge those who commit such awful treasonous activities. And by the time the reader of Romans gets to Romans 3, they're thanking their lucky stars that they're not like the evil, awful people that Romans 1 and 2 have been describing. But unfortunately, it's in the midst of chapter 3 that Paul hits the reader with these words, found in verses 10 through 18, describing all of creation. And it says this, Romans 3, 10 through 18, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We are all sinners. We are all unfaithful, just like Israel. And it is that fact that makes God's faithfulness all the better. If you are a Christian, if you are a true disciple, then God is faithful to you, even in the days when we are not faithful to him. And now his kindness, again, is to draw us back to repentance. His faithfulness is not a license for us to continue living however we want, knowing that God can't deny himself, as it says elsewhere. Our, the whole beauty of this faithfulness of God is that in his love and in his faithfulness, he kindly draws us back to a relationship with him. But we need to look at this from the other angle as well. We need to look at it from the angle of God's faithfulness to the one who was faithful. Now, 
Jesus is the example that we as Christians are supposed to strive to imitate exactly. Now, granted, we will never in this life be perfect in our imitation of Christ, but that is what we are called to do. We are called to imitate Christ. I have video, a video on that. Feel free to check that out. Uh, but we don't receive our salvation for striving to be like Christ. Even though we are called to be like him, even though we are called to imitate him, we are not saved by that imitation. In fact, James even goes so far as to say that those who don't work out their faith have a dead faith. So while we don't receive our salvation from our workings, our salvation should work itself out through our workings. Now, if we look back at our passage, we realize we can't discount Jesus just because he didn't deal with life like we did. Like this guy is literally on the run for his life from a king who is arguably the most powerful ruler in Jerusalem at this point. And we're going to see he's capable of some pretty heinous acts uh, next week. And so even though Jesus may have lived at a different time, he has still experienced things in such a way that he could be compared to Israel, where Israel has had opportunity after opportunity to not stray from God and has chosen to worship other gods and has chosen to chase after other things. Jesus, in the same way, is given opportunity after opportunity to walk away from God. And those who are, in his, who are in his family are given opportunity to walk away from God. But Jesus will always maintain the true and steady course. Jesus will choose God's way 100% of the time. Because unlike us, Jesus is faithful. Now, we just stop and be momentarily depressed here. Because we can't be like Jesus. But Christ's faithfulness here should provide us with insight into how God works. If we look across Christ's life, we can see how his ministry was blessed beyond measure. But we can also see how even Jesus was not insulated from hurt. Christian, whether you're an average, everyday Joe Christian, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a seminarian, as you walk through life, Remember that Christ suffered just like we will suffer. When our ministry doesn't go the way that we think it will, when our struggles don't end the way that we expect them to, when our loved one doesn't accept Christ as we hoped they would, recall that Jesus still suffered with many of these same things like we did. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples basically the same thing. In John verses John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Now, according to this passage, according to our passage, right, God was faithful to care for Jesus, his literal son, by warning his parents to escape to Egypt before Herod could find and limit him. God would be faithful to his son at all times. Now, if we were to look forward in Christ's life, there's one situation in it where we might be tempted to question, was God really faithful to Jesus? 
And that moment would be on the cross. As Jesus dies, he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this moment, it was in this moment that our sins were laid upon Christ so that he could act as the sacrifice, the perfect atoning sacrifice that was necessary for our sins. And it was in this moment that God would turn his back on Christ. As Jesus rightfully said, why have you forsaken me? But even still, God was faithful. Because we see three days later, Christ bursting forth in life, escaping the tomb, escaping the clutches of death as God raised him from the dead, confirming not only that Jesus was his son, but that he accepted the sacrifice that Christ had made on our behalf. So this needs to bring us back to us. Everything we look at when we read the scripture, ultimately it needs to teach us about who God is, but also about who we are and how we should live with this information. Now, if we look back, we'll see that God will always be faithful to us, regardless of our faithfulness to him. 2 Timothy 2, 11-13 says, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God cannot deny himself. Our identity in Christ is as secure as God's inability to deny it. In summary, we need to remember, as I stated at the beginning, that God is faithful to his people no matter what. And our how we live from here moment needs to be how do we strive to be faithful as God has been faithful to us? How do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Not in order that we might work to gain salvation, but rather work out of our salvation. How do we live that way? How do we understand our call as true disciples? Are we content to simply live or pray sometimes? Are we content to merely go to church, go to Sunday school, maybe hit up Wednesday nights, and then move on and carry on with our lives? Are we just seeking to do the bare minimum in order to get by, in order that we might just squeeze in the door to heaven and not have to work for it, not have to work for anything? If God is faithful even to us, what would it look like you to be more faithful to him this week? What would it look like for you to start finding someone that you can disciple? Or if you aren't in a position where you could disciple someone else, what would it look like for you to find someone that can disciple you? What, is it, what would it look like if you found a new ministry that you could engage in, whether that's in your local body of believers, which would be awesome, or whether it's in a, a faith-based organization of some kind, where you can spend additional time treating and caring for others in a way that God cares for us. Now, many of these things are things that can only take place in a local body of believers. And as always, there will be a link in the description with the Gospel Coalition's church directory. And I highly recommend, if you don't have a church, to go check that out. Find a local body of believers where you can get plugged in and where you can work and be faithful to God and express and 
um, show that that example of faithfulness to others who are learning to learn or learning to walk alongside God and others as well. I'll leave you with this. Remember, God will be faithful. He cannot be unfaithful to us. If you are in Christ, you have an assured guarantee of God's faithfulness. If you aren't in Christ, you need to get that figured out. You need to go find that local body of believers. You need to find someone who can tell you how to become a member of the body of Christ, who can tell you how to become a true disciple. But if you are in Christ, and you know that God cannot be unfaithful to you, my challenge to you is, how can you be more faithful to Him? I'm Sam, and this is For the Gospel, For God's Glory, for preaching.